This is a little bit of a detour from our current series. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And it was my intention to continue that series this morning. But what we're getting this morning is, is effectively an expansion of some thoughts I had in the shower on Thursday on this idea of walking worthy. Now, to the person on the, on the sound desk, when you upload the sermons, just file it under topical. We don't need to create a new series of sermons from the shower. <laughs> that would be a very interesting series title. But we will continue with Mark again next week. But let's uh, come before the Lord in prayer as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. You are the Almighty One. You are way beyond anything that we can comprehend. Even the greatest thoughts that we have of you are still infinitely short of the fullness of your majesty and splendor. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look to your word and as we are challenged by your word this morning that we might be encouraged uh, by who you are and how we respond as a people who stand in awe of you. Uh, Help me to speak clearly. Help all of us to hear, receive and respond in a way that is reflective of the value that you have in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've just come back from a week on the Gold Coast. Uh, we were away last week. Thank you, Alon, for preaching uh, last Sunday. That picture has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon, but just because of the look on Kenzie's face when we all went on a, on a roller coaster, it was worthwhile putting up there. But while we were away on holidays, I reckon there was one phrase that we probably said more than any other phrase, and that was, Put your shoes on. Now, I'm not famous for wearing shoes myself. That wasn't being directed at me. It was directed at the kids. Now, you needed to go somewhere. Put your shoes on. And you know how it goes. There's the why. Why you answer that. Then you get to the end of the cycle and it says, because I said. And I don't know why because I said is always that, that final statement that you make as though this is the most compelling reason. It's really more a statement of, I give up, I've answered all your questions. And it's strange because almost daily, but don't tell them otherwise, our kids say to us, we're the best mum and dad in the world. Don't spoil it for them, just let them believe it. And in light of such accolades that we have as the greatest mum and dad in the world, you think, well... Put your shoes on. Oh, certainly, you're the greatest dad in the world. Of course I'll put my shoes on. But it doesn't work that way, does it? We are a people who are, by nature, motivated by the worthiness of the cause. If we think something is a a worthwhile cause, we'll do anything. We'll do anything gladly. I love it when Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I needed things, you helped me. And they said, when did we do this? He says, those you did for the least of these, you did also for me. Providing us with with the greatest scope of a motive of why we act in this world. 
A couple of chapters later than what we read in, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. As Paul addresses the conduct of workers, he says, Serve your masters as if you are serving the Lord. Or in Hebrews 13, 1 to 2, it talks about hospitality towards strangers, that you may be entertaining angels. The Bible keeps reminding us there is an unseen, worthy reason that should motivate us in the way in which we live. Because whenever we consider something to be a worthwhile cause, it's a joy to participate in it. A number of you will be familiar with Letitia Selton from City Women here, who's about to do a bike ride from Darwin down to Broome in order to raise money to do work with regards to ministering to youth and pornography and that type of thing. I can't imagine that's going to be a very pleasant ride. But because of the cause, she's going to love it. Some of you might remember Samuel Jackson riding his unicycle 15,000 kilometres to raise money for breast cancer in honour of his sister Connie. I've ridden a unicycle before. For a short distance, it's not pleasant. For 15,000 kilometres, it's not fun. If I was to ask Nick, and I choose Nick as my example, he's not here this morning, because I imagine if I had a silly idea, Nick would be the person that I'd invite to come and do it with me. If I asked Nick, let's go for a 15,000k unicycle ride, I'm guessing he's going to say no. Because without a worthy reason, it's just a long time of months of discomfort and pain. And sometimes when we hear this phrase, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, when people hear that, sometimes the first question people ask is, what do I need to do? They look at the aspect of the, what do I do, rather than, what is the worthy cause? Or who is the one who is worthy? When it becomes about what do I do, sometimes it becomes, the obedience becomes a chore, becomes cumbersome. But as the expression goes, when the why is big, the how becomes easy. So today as we begin with the idea of walking worthy, we're going to begin with the concept of worthiness. And a worthy attitude, a worthy life, and asking how worthy Firstly, worthiness. We say it all the time, don't we? That God is worthy of our everything. He is worthy of all our praise. But do we believe it? We say it, we sing it. Do we believe it? When I say do we believe it, I don't just mean do we, could we assent to that as being a factually true statement? But if we genuinely believe it, is that expressed in the way in which we live our life? If we say, he is worthy of my everything, then surely that's going to change the way in which you live. And incidentally, he's worthy of far more than all of your worship and praise. But I want you to ponder something for a moment. 
Imagine Dan Andrews, Victorian Premier, down on his knees before Jesus. Maybe Richard Dawkins, King John Un, Muhammad. Now, you might have laughed it off when we got to Dan Andrews and think, nah, that's not going to happen, never mind when I started to get to some of these other characters. They're like, no way, these guys, these guys are hostile to Jesus. No way. They're so opposed. There's no way they would recognise Jesus as worthy of even a slightest bit of honour. But what we read in Philippians chapter 2 Speaking of Jesus, says, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heaven, earth, under the earth, everyone universally, regardless of how opposed they might have been in this life, when they see him for who he truly is, will bow their knees and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. They'll recognise him, who he is. Sure, the way they think of him now, no way they would. But even when they see him as he truly is, they cannot help but bow before him. Regardless of how much they slandered him in this life, when they see him, they'll say, he is worthy. They're not going to come to faith. It's too late for them at that point in time. But they will recognise this one whom we have defamed in this life, he is worthy. He is truly the king of kings. Had they seen that, and seeing Jesus truly as he is in this life, no doubt they would have turned and repented and traced their trust in him. He is worthy that every knee, when they see him for who he is, will bow. He is the creator, according to John chapter 1, verse 3. Not a single thing that exists, exists other than that which Jesus created. And he's more than just the creator of all. The writer, Paul, writing to the Colossian church, says, For all things, by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Every single thing you can imagine, he made it. Not only did he make it, he is made for him. He is the central focus of all of creation. Not only is the Bible all about Jesus, the whole universe is for the display of his glory. There is no one greater. There is no one presently, there's no one in the past, there's no one in the future who will be even remotely close to being as worthy. Just by his nature alone, he's the most worthy that ever has been, ever will be, to the extent that you think, I would do anything for him. And then we think about it, the one who is most worthy 
is also the one whom we treated with contempt. The one whom we should have recognised as the true king, the one who has given us life and breath and everything. The one whom everything, including us, was created through him and for him, yet we choose that we don't want to live for him. I want to live for me. We shake our fist and say, stay out. Yet even when we did all of this, it says he delivered us from darkness. He redeemed us. He forgave us. The one whom we were hostile towards, the one who had a rightful claim on our life, that whom we were made for, but we said, no, I'm going to live for myself. He came into this world. Not to give us what we deserve for that, but to provide the way which we can be saved and rescued from that. There's every reason why someone who hasn't yet placed their trust in Jesus should. He's infinitely good. You were made for him and by him and for him. He has acted so graciously on your behalf, not to give you what you deserve, but to save you from what you deserve. I imagine even for Christians, whether you've been a Christian for a short period of time or a long period of time, it is hard to grasp the degree to which he is worthy of everything. Not only do we struggle to grasp the extent of his worthiness, but I think we struggle to be captivated by how awesome and amazing and worthy he is. Here's some helpful insights of how we can pray for ourselves and for one another. As Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray about you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says, he's been praying for these people that they might be filled with all understanding and spiritual wisdom so that, in order that, that the end result, that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The clearer you see him in all of who he is, the more naturally and joyfully we will walk in a manner worthy of him. Now I encounter people all the time that say, I know that Jesus loves me and that's enough. I don't need anything more. I'm, I'm not into theology. I'm not into doctrine. I don't need to know all the little finer details. Now I realise academic study, things like Greek and Hebrew, that's not for everyone and, and nobody expects it to be for everyone. But when the person who is most worthy not only makes himself known to you, but suffers a cruel death to reconcile you to himself, how can you say, I'm content to know the bare minimum about this guy? We should be seeking to grow on a daily basis, seeking to draw nearer and nearer to him that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
Because when we are beheld even just a glimpse of what he is worth, we will be forever changed. Starting with a worthy attitude. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of God, he spoke of some attitudes that would accompany walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Specifically humility, gentleness, patience and love. This is Ephesians 4. With humility, one cannot fully grasp the wonders of who Jesus is and not be humbled by it. You cannot see him as the king of kings and the lord of lords and still be proud. He is king. I'm not king. You're not king. As John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Even the apostle Paul says, this is how we should be regarded, 1 Corinthians 4.1, as servants of Jesus and stewards of the mysteries of God. Our privileged position as a child of God is not because of anything you and I have done. It's not because we're special, we've earned a certain number of credits. It's entirely because what he has done, what God has done for us in Jesus and his death and resurrection. Even the gifts which we have, Paul has to remind the Corinthian church, he's like, why do you boast as though you have not received these things? You've got nothing to boast about. We don't come to faith because we're good enough. We come to faith because we recognise that we're sinners. That puts everyone on a level playing field. If you are outside of Christ, you are a sinner. I was a sinner. You were all sinners. We were born that way. There's not varying degrees of closer, not, not close enough. When we comprehend his greatness and recognise that anything good that we have in us comes from him, we cannot help but be humbled. If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, if we're following after him, he is the one who humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, who laid down his life to secure our salvation. There is no place for pride in a disciple of Jesus. Neither towards an unbeliever. I said we're all were the same. We all were once dead in our trespasses and sin. We all were once hostile, living as enemies of God. Nor do we have reasons to express pride towards other believers. We were previously equally sinners, now we equally come into the exact same salvation, the exact same blessings. There's no tears of Christianity where you get from one level to the next. There's not a class system. And Paul, as he expresses these things to the Ephesians, highlights some of these things that unite us. We all have the exact one same spirit. This person over here doesn't have more spirit than the other. We all have the exact same Holy Spirit. We've both saved into the same hope. Nobody has a better experience of salvation than another. All come into the exact same faith. There's not different versions of Christianity. This this person is in the elite one. This one's in the commoners' Christianity. We all have the same Lord, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same for every single one of us. We all enter through the same baptism, same for all. The only thing that Paul mentions as being different is our gifts. And by speaking about them being different, he's not so talking about being different in quality, just different gifts, because the body needs different gifts. They're all equal in value to be used for his glory. Because all of these same salvation, we all experience the same salvation, all equal status before God, then there should be, as Paul goes on to say, gentleness, patience, love and unity amongst Christians. Now sadly, love and unity is not something always that the church has been known for. But it's also worth pointing out too that unity does not mean uniformity. There is a difference between being united and being uniform. Uniform means being exactly the same in everything. But we have an equal status before God. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're in the same stage in our growth. Some of us have been Christians for years. Some of us might have just been a Christian in the last few weeks. We're all on a, on a journey. We're all learning. We're growing. We're becoming more and more conformed into the image of his son. A humble people should not be looking at others, what others are doing in order to tear them down. A humble people should be trying to, to lift others up, to spur them on to love and good works. Because when Christians are running one another down, we actually defame Jesus in the process. Remember Philippians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church in the middle of his letter. He calls out two ladies in the church who are disagreeing with one another. Imagine being part of their family. It's like, oh, I remember auntie. Our aunties now, they're, they're at each other and now it's in a book and now they're reading about it 2,000 years later. That's because division in the people of God is a division in the body of Christ. It's a serious thing. It's not a good thing. And so Paul calls it out in the middle of his letter. We need to be a humble people in order to fully lean on Jesus. We need to be a humble people for his church to display the nature of Jesus who is humble. We need to be a people walking worthy with a worthy attitude and a worthy life. Now, depending on your translation, your Bibles might have said to walk worthy. Some others might have said to live worthy. Literally, the term does mean to, to walk worthy. Or, or you could say in your walking or in your normal goings about of day-to-day life, do it in a way that is worthy of the Lord. Worthy of the Lord in humble character like the Lord Jesus himself. But from some of the readings that we had beforehand, Paul highlighted some of the outworkings of this. The people who recognise his worthiness and humbly submit to him will bear fruit in every good work, Colossians 1.10. Or as Jesus expresses in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The result of a humble abiding in Christ is that you bear 
much fruit. Well, Paul's bearing fruit in every good work. Because remember what Paul tells us in Philippians 2? He is at work in us both to will, to give us the desire, and to work to carry out that which is pleasing in his sight. The fruit of the Spirit should be flourishing in his people, abounding in the life of the, in such in our lives in such a way that brings him great glory. And because we have the same Spirit, the same Spirit that the Scriptures tell us is the one who raised Christ from the dead, we have all power to live the life that he has called us to live. It says in Colossians 1.11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I like the sound of that. Paul prays that they might be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, Paul's not just praying that because it sounds good and thought, man, the, the Colossians are going to be so impressed to hear this. Although it's some sort of lofty pipe dream. He prayed that they would have all power according to his glorious might because he prayed that it might become an actual reality for them because he knew it was possible. Something we should pray for ourselves and for one another. Knowing that he wants to resource us in every way to bear the fruit that he calls us to bear. And thirdly, he's given us gifts to use. Ephesians 4 picks up on the idea that he has given us gifts. Not just given us gifts so people can go, wow, this person's got that gift. He's given us gifts that we might use them and use them to be a blessing to one another. Nothing better speaks of the value of the one who has given the gifts than if you actually use it. Like if, if someone spent a lot of money in buying you a gift and you said, oh, that's the best gift I've ever had, I'm so thankful for it, and then you piffed it in your shed and you never used it, people would genuinely question whether you valued both the giver or the gift. We need to be a people who live recognising his worthiness in humility bearing fruit in every good work according to his power at work within us. How worthy? As we think about walking worthiness, we need to begin with the starting point of his worthiness. If we start with the walking, we will find that it becomes empty, joyless and powerless. Our founding point is recognising him for who he is, enjoying him in all of his majesty and splendour. So I don't want to call us just to do more in order to prove that he is worthy. Matter of fact, how we're living right here, right now, whether we like it or not, probably is an expression of how worthy we presently think he is. It's my desire for myself, it's my desire for all of us, that we would see something more, more deeply of how truly worthy he is. That we would be a people who are just fascinated in awe of him and transform in the way we think of him and how that transforms the way we think about everything in the way in which we live. That we'd be a people who seek hunger after him, 
be so captivated with awe and wonder that we'd be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are beyond expression of how worthy you are. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive me for how little I've credited to you, how little I think of you at times. Lord, fill our hearts anew with a sense of awe and wonder at your majesty. That it might be a joy as we we see the things that you lay before us because of our overwhelming love for you that it would be most a natural and a joyful thing to walk in faithful humble obedience we thank you that you provide us with everything that we need for life and godliness and we pray for all of us that we might be strengthened with all strength according to your glorious might We thank you that you're at work, both to will and to work that which is pleasing within your sight. Shape us and form us to be more like your son. Shape us that we might live in a way that we are a shining light in a dark world that displays something of your glory and your wonder in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.